in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. Three brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Hello, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, sir? Doing well, set up in the new house. As you know, we had to move because we just had so many fans following me to the old house that uh, I had to relocate. Do you have any ghosts in your new house? Actually, we do. We moved into the house and uh, someone had put an oil cross into our walls to uh, uh, rid the house, I guess, of where the guy died in it. So that's fantastic. As long as it's not an upside down one. That's that's okay, I guess. So it's right side up, and uh, yet Car- Carlo has left us alone thus far. So yay! Hooray! And from new houses to new babies, new father Brian Fry. How are you doing, sir? Little little crazier than I used to be, but still here. But you still like movies? Oh, I still like movies. That's that's what I do at three a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so what is? a movie you enjoy but not many people seem to know about or remember chad i really enjoy a a film from i believe it's the 50s it's called peeping tom uh it's a very early horror movie but it's it's a great time interesting haven't heard of that one and what about you brian what's a movie that uh not many people seem to know about uh, but you love I kind of had a split on this one. There were two I wanted to mention. One you guys may have heard of, or at least have heard me talk about it. The other is uh, something that I love and not a whole lot of people have heard of. Uh, 1995's Hackers with Angelina Jolie and uh, Johnny Lee Miller. I I love that movie. It does not hold up over time. It's very tech-heavy for what was available then, so you can point out all the glaring, like, oh, my God. That's (laughs) That's <laughs> that's crazy, but I love it. It's something I watch all the time. Um, the other one is I I don't even remember how I found this movie, and they really did shift all the money into the actors instead of basically anything else. Uh, very cheap uh, cheap sets that uh, they actually did very tastefully in an art house way. But the movie's called Bun Raku, and it's got five star actors in it and uh it's basically kind of a a warrior style movie but uh also very enjoyable okay and my deep cut is going to be brother nature from 2016 it features bobby moynihan and taron killam saturday night live alums it's uh it's not one that got a lot of press but uh, it's a good time awesome interesting unsurprising from you Uh, very unsurprising (laughs) (laughs) and uh uh, what movie are, is it we're doing today, Brian? Uh, we are doing John Grisham's Runaway Jury. All right, that's right. The Runaway Jury. Uh, not The Runaway Jury. I'm going to do that all night long. I want to put a The so bad in front of this movie, but just Runaway Jury. 
comes out in 2003, stars John Cusack, Gene Hackman, Dustin Hoffman, Rachel Weisz, and it grosses $48.9 million, placing it at 59th on the box office that year. It comes in just behind radio and ahead of Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> Go Frankie Munoz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The number one movie that year is Finding Nemo. Uh, IMDb gives it a rating of 7.1. And the critics of Rotten Tomatoes give this a 73% and an audience score of 75%. And uh, Ebert and Malton both give this three out of four stars. So it's pretty good, according to the critics. But, Brian, had you seen Runaway Jury before? If so, what was your background with it? Uh, yes, I, I grew up in a household of lawyers, so I grew up with Grisham novels. I actually have not read this. I just I was aware of what the story was already. Uh, when it came out, I think I had already seen A Time to Kill and, uh, and The Firm, obviously. And uh, yeah, so I just kind of kept the thing going. Plus, you know, Cusack, I'm always game. And you're a Hackman guy too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what, Hoffman did a good job on this too. So, I mean, it's, you know, Rachel-wise, I've, I've, got, I've got no complaints on the acting. Chad... What about you? What's your background with Runaway Jury? I'm the opposite of Brian. I came from a household that did not like lawyers. We we watched no law television, no law and order for us, JAG, any of that stuff. Well, then you missed out on Catherine Bell. Uh, apparently, so I've heard. Um, I did not see the types of John Grisham novels, Pelican Brief Firm, Runaway Jury. Didn't see any of those. Uh, really, I've been catching up on my courtroom drama from my wife, who is very into that. Uh, she's a big law and order person. Um, also, NCIS, less courtroom, but uh, still investigative. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm catching up. Added this one to the movie portfolio. Oddly enough, I am not usually a huge fan of heavy courtroom films uh, although i've seen a lot of them uh, i do not watch law and order it was actually weird when we had even the first couple months i ended up watching a lot of chicago pd at night just because it was something easily accessible on prime like it was one of the first three things that it was up and uh, it's it's kind of out of place for me to watch the television side of law things at least the prime time television style stuff. But how did how did how does Runaway Jury go down for you guys? I like the movie uh, adaptations to Grisham's books. Um, I haven't seen one I haven't liked. Pelican Brief is probably my favorite. Yeah, I thought it was good. I thought one of the major changes, and we'll get into it later, really took away from how good this movie could have been. Uh, but unfortunately, it got beaten to the punch by another movie okay a little tease there and uh for me i saw this movie shortly after it hit uh the rental stores and uh i loved it i i i like a, mo a movie that twists turns and gives you a mis gives you a little bit of misdirection coming back to it uh it it may have diminished a little bit because you already kind of know where the main turns are gonna be so it's a little less twisty but having said that, it's got a great cast, and I do I like courtroom dramas, so uh, this is this is up my alley, and I'm still very happy with it. And it's not just a drama, really; it's kind of got a thriller aspect to it, which is not something we've talked about yet. So, and if you haven't seen Runaway Jury, we're gonna spoil it after this, so we're gonna go to a break, and after that, 
we will spoil it and get into it deeper. So be back after these messages. Do you love sci-fi, horror, and fantasy films? Then grab a badge for Otherworlds Film Festival, the country's premier sci-fi film festival. There will be Q&As, panels, parties, and mixers. Rub elbows with up-and-coming and established filmmakers, as well as like-minded filmgoers. Come celebrate our seventh year, December 3rd through 6th, at the Galaxy Highland in Austin, Texas. Badges are now for sale at otherworldsfilmfest.com. That's otherworldsfilmfest.com. So... We're back, and this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So if you have not seen Runaway Jury from 2003, you're going to want to see it, and then come back and check this out. Chad, do you want to give us a rundown on what happens in the plot? When a disgruntled ex-employee opens fire on his former workplace, a day trader's widow brings a lawsuit against a major gun manufacturer. Wendell Rohr, played by Dustin Hoffman, is assigned to the case. Opposing him is an unscrupulous jury consultant, working for the defense by the name of Rankin Fitch, who's played by Gene Hoffman. Together, the Widow's Counsel and the defense work to whittle down a pool of eligible jurors. However, a juror plant by the name of Nicholas Easter, who's played by John Cusack, manages to make his way onto the Twelve, and, as Sean Connery would say, the game is afoot. Nick is persuasive and constantly manipulates his fellow jurors, getting them to pledge allegiance to the flag during a court session, and even managing to get one of the jurors removed. His girlfriend Marley, who's played by Rachel Weiss, is behind the plant and begins extorting both sides. She wants $10 million for the deciding vote. Fitch sends goons after Weiss and even torches Nick's apartment looking for dirt. It turns out Nick's real name is Jeff, and he's from a small town where his friend and other classmates were murdered by a school shooter when he was a teenager. That friend also happened to be Marley's sister. The little town sued the gun manufacturer and lost, bankrupting the town. To further twist the knife, Fitch was aiding the defense team that helped win the case over the small town. Fitch doesn't learn this information until too late, wiring $15 million to Marley in a last-ditch effort to win his case. Nick manages to convince the jurors that the manufacturer is liable, and the jur- jury awards the widow $111 million. In one last confrontation after the verdict, Fitch meets Marley and Nick, asking what they'll do with the $15 million. They state they'll be giving the money back to their hometown of Gardner, Indiana. All right. So a lot of twists and turns there. Well done. Brian, what do you think about the story of Runaway Jury here in this movie? I kind of take this from a, a an interesting vantage point because, you know, I, I mentioned I grew up with lawyers. My wife's a doctor. I hear a lot of criticism about law movies, about medical shows, about, you know, the differences between what they make in these fictional accounts versus how it would really happen in real life. I am so happy that I don't know any of these things because I can't imagine what it would be like not to be able to enjoy this stuff. So I don't know if, you know, any of this is plausible. Um, I remember thinking the, uh, the first time when the judge is buying them all lunch uh, outside of the sequestered room, I was like, I bet people have a fit about this. Like this whole thing probably would have been thrown out right there. But, you know, I get to enjoy this from a from a place of ignorance, and um, I'm, I'm kind of happy about that. Grisham movies are, like, hit and miss for me sometimes. I, I, think, I feel like this one and Pelican Brief 
and to maybe a little smaller extent, the firm have rewatchability, but like a time to kill is not a movie. You're like, yep, I'm just going to pop this in and watch it. (laughs) So I've never seen the chamber. The client's one of his too, right? I remember seeing that one way back, but I couldn't really tell you anything other than Sarandon's in it now. There you go. Did you know Christmas with the Cranks was a Grisham movie? I didn't. Grisham story? Oh, that's a... It's like weirding me out right now. Rankin Finch, uh, played by Gene Hackman, is kind of the evil Sherlock Holmes. I like his character a lot. I like somebody who can just walk in a room and uh, break down the environment and the people within it. Uh, I don't know if that's a real typology of person to add to what Brian was saying. I don't know if this is a real thing or not, but... Uh, I sure do like these kind of characters. He makes a formidable villain to overcome. There's a newer show with uh, Michael Weatherly, who uh, was from NCIS. It's called Bull, and that's his job. He is a jury analyst, so he's a consultant that's hired, and this is a real thing, hired by a defense or a prosecution team either side that goes in and tries to eliminate certain jurors and find out and they do a, a pitch of okay these will these you can sway these you can't so yeah um Rankin Fitch is obviously on on the defense side but they do have those type of analyst jobs yeah doesn't that seem kind of like a card counting thing like I don't know I just remember thinking my first time watching this film that that's it's got to be something that uh, is probably done, but not something that someone walks up and says, hi, I'm a jury consultant. Like, oh, like, I just feel like that's the equivalent of like card counting. Sure, it probably happens to a certain extent, but nobody talks about it. And if you get caught, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah I, I, it would be a great party trick for sure. Like to just walk in and be like, that guy over there, cross dresses on the weekend. Yep. <laughs> the Steve Buscemi of... Uh... <laughs> crossing off a list all right people to kill <laughs> i'm glad i was nice to that guy now chad one of the things that you were mentioning let's get into it right away because you teased it differences in the book versus the movie i have not read the book but in reading up on this uh, the 1996 novel the lawsuits filed against a tobacco company and this screenplay was in development several years and it took a long time to get it made and in that time, The Insider, starring Russell Crowe and Al Pacino, good movie, came out in 99, and all subsequent scripts involved a lawsuit against the gun manufacturer wanting to be different. Is this that thing that you were getting at that was kind of bothering you? Yeah, that's absolutely it. I, I think it's a stronger movie. If it were about the tobacco industry, I know why it was changed. But we've seen the successes in the tobacco industry where we haven't really seen these successes against gun manufacturers. Yeah, and the tobacco references are in this movie. There's a couple of small things here and there, like don't smoke in the courtroom or the juror's room. like, And then people give them a hard time, no, I don't want you to smoke here. Or Nick Easter uh, gives his maintenance man at the beginning kind of a little tip of the hat where he says, uh, you know, those things will kill you. There's a couple of hidden anti-smoking pieces in there perhaps as a nod to the novel but that's not enough for you is it no (laughs) no i mean this they changed the major plot device so yeah it's it weakens the movie for me it's still enjoyable but 
but uh, I just personal politics, I guess. Uh, I find suing a gun manufacturer for what their product was used for later on a little bit ridiculous. I I don't like that. Now our audience may be a little little more uh, left of center than where I am, so it may not bother a lot of people. I'm very pro-gun. I'm also pro-background check. Like, if I want to get a fully automatic gun, like, I, you can analyze me however much you need to. Like, I would take a psych or a polygraph or whatever it would take to obtain it, but I don't think anything should be unobtainable. Within reason, obviously. I don't want to be like, I want a nuke. But, uh, um you know, there's, there's probably, a, there probably is a line to be drawn. Now I will say, as far as this movie goes, if I saw someone come out with a gun that has like an extended magazine and a fingerprint resistant finish and stuff like that, like, I feel like they did, uh, market the antagonist in this movie to be an antagonist. I don't think gun manufacturers would ever be that overt in their uh, uh, publicizing a weapon. Now, I probably could be woefully wrong about this, and you could just quickly Google, like, crazy gun ads of the last 10 years. But, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm strong Second Amendment, but uh, I do, I, I would say I've, I firmly plant my feet that if they want to psychoanalyze me first before I buy something because it's a little bit more aggressive than they're comfortable with, I'm cool with that, too. For me, I'm maybe this is just not something I'm politically strong on and it doesn't bother me as much. I just need a case to set the table for the fun uh, power play that ensues. And I don't think they're I don't think in what I'm reading here that they made like a political decision to be like, yeah, we like tobacco and no, we don't like guns necessarily. I think it was just as simple as they needed a controversial subject and they couldn't do smoking because that was already taken. But this was this this movie comes out four years later. Actually, five years later. No, four years later. Four years later. And I would question and say, I think you can put two movies out about smoking trials. And I've seen The Insider, and it doesn't live in a courtroom or a jury selection committee. And I would not have watched this movie and been like, oh, this is The Insider. What well, is topically relevant for today, the the Parkland shooting, um, the unfortunate, again, school massacre that actually happened in real life. They are attempting to sue Bushmaster and Remington. And the Supreme Court has kind of gone ahead and said, okay, you, you can at least bring this to court. So stuff like this is happening. We just haven't seen a judgment that's been in favor of uh, these parents or or anything like that where a gun has been used. We haven't seen a judgment against the gun manufacturer. And to be clear, I'm not a uh, not like card carrying uh, member of the NRA. Go get my whatever AR-15. If that's you, that's fine. But uh, that concept of me to me of suing a gun manufacturer. Now to Brian's point, this one they made the gun factory manufacturer super sleazy and just a ridiculous stereotype it was fun to watch <laughs> i mean just the whole cigar scene with them all sitting in a, in a semicircle like yeah yeah guns <laughs> see yeah. you're you're gonna bias our your our vote our money's well spent right i mean they made like the bad guys are the typical like 
hinchy bad people in this. Like they, like they didn't leave you any like, well, maybe they have a point. Like they're <laughs> paying a guy to fix a, 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 a thing. I mean, like they're, they are the bad guys. Like he's not simply helping with the jury. He is being paid to strong arm the journey jury into voting their way. So I think that's what really cements this as the bad guys. Like if this is a real profession that's known about and accepted, Gene Hackman's not doing what is accepted. Like this is above and beyond to the criminal aspect. So the fact that they are complicit in the criminal aspect makes them the bad guys for this, for the intent of this movie. I feel like Bruce Davison was channeling Jerry Jones. I, I really felt like I was listening to a Cowboys press conference with a lot of the things that he was saying. It's like, oh, this is all just ridiculous. But to your point, yeah, they they did clearly make him almost like mustache-twirling Texas right. stereotype villain. Ah, Second Amendment! Ah, Second Amendment! <laughs> so, uh, but uh, as far as... Is, changing the plot as drastic as drastically as they did from the book i mean santana high school shooting was 2001 uh the cold springs minnesota was 2003 the movie came out in 2003 so i don't think they had time to crank it out that quickly but you know we've you know been awash in a sea of school shootings basically since columbine so i mean it's not like they didn't have the source material to make this a believable thing by 2003 yeah, I think that is a good way of putting it, Brian. Like, I think that's one of the reasons it doesn't bother me so much. Like, it, this court hasn't happened, but this is a fictional 2003, and it's a controversial trial. It's emotionally charged, and I could see people behaving and like like you might have said, they're they're hyped up stereotypes for entertainment's sake. But I could see behavior like this on both sides. So, I it, it works as a mechanism for storytelling for me. Uh, there were some other changes in the book, though. I mean, one of the interesting things is Rankin Fitch uh, in the book has a very strong sexual tension with Marley. He's attracted to her, and so she's able to kind of use her looks to kind of lure him in. And it's, it's this game of cat and mouse, and there's that, again, sexual tension. That doesn't really come through in the movie. If anything, he's just kind of threatening, and like you see how shaken up she is. Oh, I, I felt that came through when they had the scene on the bus or the the trolley together i i felt like gene hackman did a pretty good job of expressing desire for rachel weiss's character i think for me with both his interactions with weiss and with cusack it's more of a grudging admiration of like these are the kind of people that could take my place one day like what would it take to get you over to my side as opposed to i want to bone you yeah that's, exactly that's fair i guess i just figured it was both yeah i could see i could see finch even saying like you beat me this time but like i think i might want to work with you in the future like is kind of the vibe i was getting off of him like of like wow you guys are just like you figured this all out on your own like i i fell into a system that's designed to like you know manipulate this but you guys are just grassroots doing it so i think there's i think fry's right i think there's a degree of admiration because i mean fitch another good or sorry finch a good part of his character is he likes the evil stuff that he's doing like he likes to pick people apart and manipulate the trials like 
he gets he gets great joy out of it. Upon rewatching this, and it has been probably every bit of you know ten years plus since I've seen this movie. Uh, before I did the rewatch, I did for a while. I just kept waiting for the offer, like with both of them, like for their individual talks. I really just kept waiting for him to be like, you know, you could be making a lot more money if you were working for me. <laughs> it just, it's, I just always felt like the offer was, was hanging in the air, but never spoken. I think there was such resentment because he was involved with the first case in their hometown that he just knew it wasn't on the table. Hmm. What bothered me, and I, you guys may be able to point it out to me, I may have just missed it. I was fine with everything that happened after Nick got on the jury, but how did they rig it for Nick to get on the jury in the first place? Was that ever explained? Because if it was, I just missed it. This was a question I had too. Uh, the fact that he had been on so many other juries and had been bounced already. Like, I've never, ever been served with papers for jury duty. The fact that lightning struck this guy and three other places that Gene Hackman had been rigging cases blew my mind. I, I have to assume that that can only be a tr- purely fictional piece of this. Yeah, I got summoned twice. Although once I got, I got summoned to West Virginia and I'd been living in Pennsylvania for 10 years. So way to go, court records. But uh, yes. yeah, to Brian's question <laughs> earlier, about, I did read that one of the things that is in effect in many locations and especially with New Orleans is that prospective jurors are required to have had permanent residence in that jurisdiction for at least one year before being selected. So the idea of moving from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati to all these other towns, hoping to land on this kind of like trial wouldn't work because you kind of got to have your roots down to get selected to a jury. It's the same in Pittsburgh as far as I know. Yeah, so so I guess that just wasn't explained. Like that's that's the one piece that they really needed to nail down of how did you get him on this jury? Because that's supposed to be random selection. So the first time I watched it, I didn't ask that question and I think I was happy really happy. Like I might have had an iron higher regard. Upon watching it the next time, this movie kind of just fools the viewer. Like Nick Easter walks into a shop and we see Marley in there. And it's almost as if they don't know each other, only we later then find out that they are together. There's some misdirection that is done simply to fool the viewer. And I don't necessarily like that. There's there's genuine misdirection in here, and there's a lot of good writing that I, I don't want to diminish at all. But then again, some of it's just like, haha, we got you kind of thing. And to some degree, that, that turning the card of Nick Easter for the audience is... Uh, it's sometimes rewarding, but at other times, like particularly like with him and Rachel Weisz's character, it's more of a, hmm, we fooled you kind of thing. I don't want to be fooled. Yeah, I I think it would have been, I, I don't know what's real. Again, I don't know what's real and what's not when it comes to the law and, and how likely you are to get a jury summons or anything like that. Um, I thought it was just a random thing, like drawing a name out of a hat or hitting random on your computer. But it would have been worth it for me if, you know, they spent 30 seconds with uh, Rachel Weiss dropping an envelope of cash to whoever's at the courthouse to get someone's name put on the list or something right. like that. Because that's that's the part, especially I don't remember having that question when I watched it first, but having watched it again now, 
and then them going through the whole part of about him being bounced off of other uh, cases around the country. I was like, how does this happen? Like I've been, I've known so many people who have gotten jury duty and I just figured it was like a landmine I hadn't stopped, stepped on yet, you know? So, oh, and I would do it. Cool. I'd be totally game. Well, you, you, you get the Grinch from the Grinch who stole Christmas and jury duty, jury duty, jury duty, jury duty. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. I mean, uh, like my work has to accommodate the request. So I get off work. I get paid by the city. They give me lunch and I get to judge people. It's great. Uh, sign me up. Like I'll do this weekly. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think I would have, I, I, again, I don't know. I'm sure there's a reason people dread this. It's probably true. It's probably super boring. You probably don't get a capital case. You probably get like the, you know, the people versus 25 parking tickets or something like that. And you just want to shoot yourself in the head by the end of it. But like, it just always seemed to be one of those things like, all right, I'm game. You know, I want to be able to say I did that. Yeah. Yeah. They always plead out for the ones that I've gotten. So you waste, waste a day. What do you think about the cast here? We've got three Oscar winners with Rachel Weisz, Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman. Brian, do you like this cast as an ensemble and a group here? My favorite person is the only non Oscar winner. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, this is a great cast. I I will say that my recast is one of them, uh, but not because they didn't do a good job just because, I kind of like the idea of this other person in a, in a courtroom. Uh, I've seen it before. It's fun, but no, I mean, I think if you look at this cast, especially at that time, you know, Rachel Weiss hasn't been in as many things here recently, but at that time she was huge after the mummy series and stuff like that. So, you know, I think this is just one of those casts when you hear Grisham movie and then that cast, you're like, sign me up. Yeah. Now, Chad, what are any interesting casting comments? I think it's funny that this is the second movie we've done this year with an Orlando Bloom or Orlando Jones, not Orlando Bloom, wildly different person. (laughs) Orlando Jones cameo. So we did Office Space earlier. It's like, oh, you don't expect Orlando Jones to keep popping up in these movies, but this was his (laughs) heyday. Absolutely. And... In 1997, Edward Norton was actually originally cast because this mo- this movie was troubled in production. So he was going to be Nick Easter with Joel Schumacher directing. Yes, that is Batman and Robin's Joel Schumacher um, yeah. or Phantom of the Opera's <laughs> Joel Schumacher. But uh, um, <laughs> and uh, Sir Sean Connery and Gwyneth Paltrow were cast in the roles of Fitch and Marley, respectively. But Schumacher dropped off the project. Sometimes things happen and it helps. Uh, and it was delayed and all of those actors moved on to other projects. Perhaps I'm being hard on Schumacher. Would either one of you want to see this other version with Edward Norton, Connery, and Paltrow and Schumacher? Or uh, are you glad you got this run? I mean, axe Gwyneth Paltrow and I'm game. Wow, you, that's strong feelings for Paltrow in that one. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I would say I'd watch it. I mean, Ed Norton does a great job. He's difficult to work with, but uh, Sean Connery would be interesting. I I don't know that he would provide the same menace. Hackman's not a picnic to work with either, by all accounts. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. I I don't think Connery's as menacing as Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman's coming off like a, he's got his Lex Luthor turn. I mean, he's just he can 
be an excellent bad guy. I think so. I think I think that's a good point. I'm, I I know he recently passed away, so I don't want to besmirch him too much, but I, I'm not a Joel Schumacher fan. <laughs> You're still sore over that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, hey I mean, I, I'm I'm. It's not just that. Like I said, Phantom of the Opera. I I, I, I have uh, my expectations were up high, and they I left going like, ugh. Oh, I like Phantom. I, I did too. love the play, but not the movie. I mean. A time, I, I mean, he he'd already he already had a a Grisham movie under his belt with Time to Kill, so I, I get it. Uh, and the client, he did so he was kind of the reigning Grisham guy anyway. So I, I guess I, I get why they were they were casting him in that that piece. I mean, he kind of gets that southern, eerie. I mean. Time to Kill, I was talking to Chad about this, and Time to Kill is just one of those movies, like, it's heavy. It's not a rewatchable movie, but, I mean, it's, you know, you remember it. Well, I, I'm glad we got this version and not the other ones. Will Smith was actually in, in talks to play Nicholas Easter in this version, and Jennifer Connelly could have been Marley, and Mike Newell would have been directing it. But Will Smith dropped out, and the entire project stalled for a second time before it was rebuilt Again, do you want this Will Smith, uh, Jennifer Connelly version? I don't have a uh, Fitch in this one. Wiki, wiki, wild, wild. I feel like Will Smith would have the charisma to pull it off. Um, Jennifer Connelly, I want her cast in everything. So <laughs> that's that's 100% fine with me. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. Okay. And... One more thing the internet suggests, and these must be true, is Naomi Watts was offered the role of Marley, but then turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. Bridget Monahan and Amanda Peet were also considerations of Marley, but it went to Rachel Weiss. Meh. I'm a big Amanda Peet fan. Yeah, Na- Naomi Watts, I could take her leave. Okay. And Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman were also classmates in a Pasadena playhouse. They were both voted least likely to succeed in their group. <laughs> i'm sure Excellent. they bring that up often Excellent. jealous much seriously I, I, who else is in this group like i mean who's creating those awards though like we're not doing mean stuff like that anymore even when we graduated high school well we did take a vote here on retro movie roundtable and um we didn't want to tell you this chad but brian and i voted you least likely to succeed I, i'm fine with that <laughs> <laughs> spot on folks if i if i had to give up bad boys 2 and i robot i would not have voted will smith in for this movie mm. okay. okay so I bad, bad boys 2 was 2003 i robot was 2004 so if either of those came into conflict with this i would have been like nah and i don't have the list here but this is apparently the 10th movie we've seen john cusack and jeremy piven together Oh, yeah. They don't get along anymore, really? but Grifters, Serendipity, Bob Roberts, Elvis Stories, Gross Point Blank, Say Anything. There's still more than that. Yeah, yeah. Gotta love Gross Point Blank. Uh, that's one of my favorites. All right. So any other casting notes that you want to call attention to? Just that uh, Gene Hackman appears to be a Grisham muse. He's in The Firm and The Chamber as well. So three movies for him. He just has that stately nature. <laughs> let's talk about the director here gary fletter is the director and we talked about schumacher was originally cast uh, largely at the insistence of grisham and the author had uh, 
been pleased with the way Schumacher had handled the other two movies, as Brian mentioned, A Time to Kill in 96 and The Client in 94. So Flutter says when you make a movie, you got to make it three times, the writing, the filming, and the cutting. How do you feel about the direction? Because I was noticing in some of the criticisms from Malton and Ebert were actually directed at the director. Uh, I, I Can I ask in what way? Because I didn't see anything like glaringly damning about his direction of this. They, they said the storytelling was not... Okay, so the, what I was kind of alluding to with I don't want to be fooled, they said certain motives don't matter. So like this movie is a lot of talk is what one of them said. But mm-hmm. when it, it comes to explaining what's going on, they're no longer pertinent. And is this good storytelling? And the other one, I believe, actually just flat out said, this is an awfully good cast and the director's not up to the par with his cast. And I'd like to see hmm. somebody better in the driver's seat. So both of them kind of took shots at Flutter. I kind of thought that was a bit harsh, to be honest with you. But Well, I think the only other movie... Well, I've seen two movies he's done. I saw The Express and then I saw uh, Kiss the Girls. So I didn't have any arguments with either of those two films either. Now, I will say this. If you're saying that the director isn't up to par with three Oscar winners and John Cusack, I mean... Okay, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> it's it's like being you know a brand you know a, a college coach going up to the you know NBA or NFL and being like, oh, congratulations, you got a really really good Super Bowl winning team because this other guy had to retire. Like, okay, like don't shame me for that. That's <laughs> that's that's not a. Or it's like walking up to Michael Douglas and being like, hey, uh, your wife's too hot for you. Okay. Yeah, it's like. Uh, well, darn. <laughs> yeah, I I guess I get the criticism. I, I wrote this down in my notes of there were too many people that were almost stereotypes or caricatures of actual human beings. I think of the religious lady uh, in the courtroom. And yeah, there there's some super yay Jesus while drinking alcohol or whatever <laughs> under the table all the time. But it was just like every word. They just said, hey, your character is this crazy religious lady, and this is all your lines are going to be. Like, give the character a little more nuance. But that's just it. Like, that's that was a piece of, of Gene Hackman's part. Find me more of these people. Like, they're in jury selection, they probably had three times the number of people that they actually whittle it down to. They were picking personalities specifically to be on this jury, ones that would be pliable, ones that would agree with them. So the fact that you got a lot of very, very strong characters in terms of their um, genericness, I guess you would say, or, or you know, however you would put whittling them down to you know a lowest common denominator i think that's what gene hackman was looking for yeah i think they're helping you as the viewer get that right because if you're reading a novel you can get all this nuanced stuff but you've got a very short period of time to get across a pretty large cast if you look down through this cast list there's a lot of people here and so you don't have very long to really establish where these characters stand so yeah, just other other characters got a little bit fair of a shake, like Luis Guzman's character. He wasn't, they didn't make him like a ridiculous uh, Latino stereotype or anything, but they did uh, lean into the stereotypes uh, maybe a little too hard with Rankin Fitch and with the religious lady on the jury. I like she fat women. Me. They have a chip on their shoulder. 
<laughs> she reminded me a lot. Find of, me uh, fourteen more just like her. <laughs> the crazy lady in the uh, um, the mist who who wound mm-hmm. up starting her own cult. Uh huh. Well, she's scary, but yes. <laughs> I don't need to be scared in that movie. <laughs> in this movie, might not like that. Gary Fletter talks a lot about the story. I was watching the director's commentary on the DVD, and I've not heard very many directors speak so little about why they chose certain locations, the lighting, and the stylistic choices. He spoke so, so, so much about the story and creating the misdirection and talking about the sequencing and the story. And so... Flutter was just absolutely committed to the story, and you can tell it's his first, second, and third focus. That misdirection for the viewer uh, doesn't always pay off for me. I mentioned the candle shop scene in the very beginning where the two uh, characters act like they're friends and they turn out to actually be cons together and in a romantic relationship together. Is this movie not rewarding enough on its own that we don't need that stuff? So I, I do question some of Flutter's choices because I think there's a lot of meat here and you don't need that. I think you can swim in the characters and just enjoy all these characters. Some of the tricks might not even be necessary. Yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to get at is I, I want more character development. And if it comes at the expense of getting rid of some of the tricks that just didn't really have that much of a payoff, hey, I'm all for it. Some of them are good. I mean, I liked how they manipulated the jury. I liked the whole, like, I got to get out of here. I got to be on the Madden Challenge, making it seem like he didn't want to be there. Like, I really enjoyed that scene. It was actually a little bit humorous. Or when they went to the restaurant, as Brian said, like, there's these little moments of humor, I think, are are rewarding, to Flutter's credit, of they lighten the mood, and then they, then they add the suspense and the threat in there. So if it's all down, if it's all dark then you're in for a very different kind of movie. But I actually like these moments of like pulling you out of it. And then it makes the serious moments that much more, that much more heavy. So I I did like the emotional um, seesaw that he put you on. You could have given me a little more explanation of why the jury guards were so incompetent though. (laughs) (laughs) Movie ploy. Like one time escaping. Oh, all right. But, uh, this is borderline Scooby-Doo levels of incompetence. Would you prefer Halloween 5, like where like those two bumbling cops have like tuba music playing the whole time? Bump, 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 bump. You didn't have to go any further than would you prefer like Halloween 5 and I could have just said no. <laughs> that is the correct answer. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> In terms of the look of the movie, what did you guys think about the style and the feel? I think it could have been a little bit darker. I'm huge Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil kind of fan. I love that Southern mystique that you can add to things. Uh, I really think they dropped the ball, and I'll just go out and say it. My change one thing for this movie is uh, I I think they could have done a better job making it a little darker. Okay. Okay. And what about you, uh, Chad? Oh, no. (laughs) I don't, I don't like the dark movies. They make me sleepy. <laughs> I kind of wanted more New Orleans feel. Yeah, they went in a voodoo shop early, and I was like, I bet I'll hear when the saints go marching in at some point. And sure enough, a guy with a saxophone was playing it, a, a little section of it uh, during one scene. But otherwise, it, it didn't feel as New Orleans-based as I would have liked. 
I would have yes. liked to spend more time in the city. And I, I feel like the city's colorful and bright and there's a lot going on. So it it was sad to see it neglected a little bit. Now, the uh, courtroom shots are tend to be very traditional in most courtroom movies and very symmetrical, uh, kind of building up a left side, right side kind of tension. But as the court becomes corrupted, they, they give way to a little more of a handheld movement in the camera. And that's a subtle thing that make you feel, again, the scales of justice are being tipped. I would like to see that going farther, but I like that notion. And I give them credit for going down that path. I say... Take it and run with it farther. Sure. There were cut scenes where Marley is propositioning Rankin Finch and uh, Wendell Rohr has cut scenes that move through conversations faster. Uh, there are hints of humor leading into the scene with uh, feeling patriotic as well. It's a lot to condense a book down to this. Did you feel like there were missing beats for you in this? The only thing I needed was like I said, g- give me 30 minutes to explain, or 30 minutes, give me 30 seconds <laughs> with a quick way to explain, you know, how he manages to get on all of these juries, or maybe a little bit more explanation of how that system works, because all the questions I had it, were in line with, did they just do this for the movies? Is that really how that works? You know, just sort of things like that. And I don't need it to be over, like obsessively detailed about the courtroom stuff, but I do think there are maybe some, some bigger questions that are, that are worth answering and spending, call it two and a half more minutes added onto the film. Uh, and you can split those segments up however you want to explain a couple things to me, just so I know that I'm getting or reading it right. See, I thought the the pacing worked for me. I was fine. Just maybe you've nailed it, Russell. Is there are some things to cut and then replace with with other development? But overall, I felt like the pacing was just right for me. I I, I did. I, that's a good way of putting it. I, I I like the pace and I like the up and down motion that it takes. But there are a couple of beats. And like you guys were saying, or like you were saying, Chad, I, I want some of these characters to swim in a little more. The flashbacks may be a little bit long. I Actually, a moment of poignant dialogue just between that mother and Finch's man who's there. Uh, you know, I don't need the flashback scenes. I think the actors' faces can hold so much water there on their own. So that was another one of those ones where like uh, the flashback, let the actors handle it. Don't I don't need to be spoon fed. This isn't a CSI TV show. <laughs> yeah i think that that if you had added a little bit more humanity to them with actual scenes as opposed to the constant birthday party video yeah okay yeah so you didn't like that opening no i mean well they re- go back to it like two or three times in the film yes so like maybe you know the opening was fine but they didn't need to continuously go back to that okay what did you think about the action scenes? Because there's actually a fair number of action scenes. We have Rachel Weiss being attacked in her apartment by a uh, goon. We have Nick chasing Doyle uh, out of his apartment. Again, that's one of uh, Fitch's like henchmen, so to speak, and uh, chasing him down the street and attacking his car. Like, do you like these like action moments? Sure. It actually probably could have been a little bit more fast paced when it comes to that. Uh, again, this kind of goes in with the making the movie a little darker. Uh, they they did the main chunk of this movie you know during the daytime you know courtroom hours that sort of thing 
But I feel like some of the more compelling scenes, like when Sergeant Major guy confronts him in the motel later, uh, when Cusack meets Gene Hackman down by the levee, like some of the more compelling scenes of this movie happen in the nighttime where it felt more dangerous, where they use the location in their favor to, to kind of add that thriller piece to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to continue being the opposite of Fry. I, I think we need to make two different movies. Um, <laughs> I would watch Brian's, but yeah, the, the parts that were interesting to me were the dialogue confrontations. I was looking forward all all movie for when Gene Hackman and Dustin Hoffman were going to finally get some time together, and thankfully we did get it. Uh, the action scenes, uh, I wrote down, these guys were just very, very comfortable manhandling Rachel Weiss. I, I guess it speaks to, again, making the defense cartoonishly evil, but it struck me as that probably wasn't the job that you were asked to do. Maybe it was. Well, Doyle mentions that, like, this guy's out of control. I don't like working with him. Like, why do you why do I have to take him? Yeah, I'm not I'm not here to hurt you. Just beat the crap out of you. Just the more subtle scenes. And you can you can tell with Rachel Weiss. I thought she did a fantastic job where she was bluffing. She steps out and she just collapses against this wall and lets out a deep breath. And I thought that was a great scene. Just subtle scenes like that. Or what was working for me. The action was, eh, I, I don't know. It was sprinkles for me. I wouldn't even pick up your laundry for that. So, yeah, those action scenes, like, take advantage of shaky cam. Extremely zoomed in. You're not really able to see the surroundings. Perhaps to your point of you want a little more New Orleans, there's not a lot of interaction with the surroundings. They jump over a wall into a public area next to them. But generally speaking... There's not a strong storyboarding of the scenes that they move through. It's very tight, a little bit claustrophobic, and that makes you feel like you're going fast. But on the other hand, you've got this really inspired location, and I'm with Chad. I I, I say swim in the scenery a little bit more, and these action scenes are a really good place of doing that. If you want a good example of that, I mean, obviously Bond movies do a really good job of that, but the Bourne movies do a great job of that too. I mean... The architecture and the places become a part of what they're doing and they interact with it and they become a bigger part of that. So like I said, I want to see I want to see the city more through those chase scenes. Yeah, definitely. And I don't like the slow motion fight scene between Janovich, uh, which was the guy who Brian was alluding to, like the guy who's out of control in Marley. It seems hard for me, I guess, in a way. But I mean, I, I actually I, I say speed and and um makes the roughness of it seem far more difficult i guess so to speak so maybe i just don't want to sit in it as long yeah we've had a couple rough scenes like that thanks to uh true romance oh this is nothing compared to that though oh yeah that was i mean that's a a very violent movie (laughs) (laughs) check it out yeah oh i've seen it i'm I'm aware well no we just released it on the podcast (laughs) I would I would definitely rather spend some time with Janovich than uh, with James Gandolfini from that movie. I mean, they're both yeah. truly terrible, evil people who want to like beat people up and uh, enjoy hitting ladies. But uh, man, uh, that was hard to do. <laughs> yeah, but still yeah. check out our podcast on it. <laughs> with that ringing endorsement. 
So one of the editing things I just have to point out was the female bailiff says, I bake these muffins myself. She's not holding muffins. She's holding a tray of brownies. <laughs> well, that's just Russell being nitpicky. <laughs> I noticed it the first time I watched it, and somehow, like, I, I caught it a second time. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I remember. Those are brownies, not muffins. <laughs> that's why everybody spit them out. It's like, these muffins suck. I'll tell you why. They're not muffins at all. The only one that was surprised with the, was the blind juror. I mean, come on. That, uh, that was a little bit heavy-handed. It's like, yes, we get it. Justice is blind. Uh, you know, I, I liked him, though. I really did. Uh, the gullible blind juror, yeah. Did you notice that uh, the, the goth girl who was on the, the stand-in juror who replaces the alcoholic juror, her name is Lydia Dietz? Yeah. From Beetlejuice. That's yep. the same name as uh, the Beetlejuice character. I like that. But she had no other purpose. She was just there to be goth and in a corner. <laughs> well, I, I, Nick, I guess is, it shows Nick's gone, ability yeah. to hit and connect with so many different kinds of people. You must be girls. But I mean, he like like the wholesome mom. He's able to like be friends with her. The black guy. He's able to be friends with him. The older, the older blind gentleman. Like Nick has the charisma to pull all these people from all these different walks of life and whatnot, except the hardened military man. Oh, he got him in the end though. He was all, he did the same thing Dustin Hoffman did to the, uh, the gun company guy, like get him mad enough to look like the bad guy and sit back and let everybody pick against him because they don't want to be that kind of asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and this movie had a lot of these little things. Like I said, there are little smoking comments. My favorite of which is Rankin Finch just mocks Wendell Rohr. Uh, in there so uh it's when it's in that great scene between hoffman and hackman and hackman uh you know is mocking him saying why do you do this for truth justice in the american way which is so perfect because he's lex Luthor and superman hmm. yeah. i i like one yeah, of those throw, throwaways of i can't smoke i can't leave the room what is this california <laughs> <laughs> yes so, Brian, I haven't heard you talk about it. You went darker, but did you like the choice of New Orleans as a setting? I mean, uh, the original book was actually supposed to be in Biloxi, Mississippi. Did you like moving it to New Orleans? Uh, I always enjoy uh, New Orleans movies. It's an area that I've been to. It's cool. It's kind of uh, edgy uh, in that way. Um, I went down for Mardi Gras, and I was telling... Uh, you know, I was telling Jess when we were down there, I was like, I really want to see some eerie voodoo crazy stuff because that's like, I know that's not all New Orleans is, but it's something that they you know encourage and associate with. So to have a, you know, bright daylight predominant movie, you know, located there, you're just kind of like, yeah, but I want to see some weird. It's also the city of jazz. So there's some brightness in it, too. <laughs> Brian's into the dark Mardi Gras New Orleans. Yeah, yeah Chad, Chad, here. Chad, 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 and I want the sunshine, hot days, and the jazz music, and the music, yeah. like, and then the Brian's trombone here. parade. <laughs> Brian's here. Give me the skeleton key. <laughs> so the studios wanted Gary Flutter to shoot this in Canada and just call it New Orleans, but he insisted and said, "This is a, a city of amazing color, architecture, textures, and warmth." So, uh, actually, he's kind of pushing that. Flutter said. 
a recent New Orleans uh, press conference, the city is uh, such a great dichotomy for being rich and decadent, but also overshadowed by a history of corruption and violence. And there's a roughness to it. So there's a there's a strong duality in that city. And he really liked that rich contrast. For this movie of the contrast of sides here, not knocking Biloxi necessarily or Canada, but he really wanted it in New Orleans. And um, ultimately, that's where they shot it. And I think that's a great choice. I agree. Right. And they did look at a couple of other cities, too, even like, again, even when they said we're not going to do Canada and call it New Orleans, Memphis and uh, Richmond were also considered. And they would have changed the location in the film to have been Memphis or Richmond. But again, the scenes where they chose to shoot everything, was they, those were great choices. And it was New Orleans. It had to be New Orleans. I've been to Memphis. It's a fun town, too. Um, I thought it was interesting, both The Rainmaker and uh, The Firm, which are Grisham novels, are Memphis stories as well. Uh, he's from, I mean, he grew up and I, I think was born in Arkansas, but moved off the farm when he was under 10 years old and moved to Mississippi. So I think he considers himself from Mississippi. So he's like the Stephen King of the Southeast, like where Stephen King puts everything in New England. Uh, I guess he keeps everything in the South. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he actually has another, or there's another author that I've read books from uh, called uh, named Greg Isles. Uh, his are a little less law heavy. Uh, there's still underlying law themes to him, but uh, he does a series. Uh, I think it's Natchez Burning, Mississippi Blood, and something else. It's a trilogy. But I started reading his protagonist uh, has a couple books that happened before those, and I kind of started reading to get to that trilogy. And uh, they're very interesting uh, books as well. But they're you know very dark, very gritty. And uh, maybe because I've never actually read a Grisham novel, maybe this movie does portray it perfectly. You know, maybe he doesn't go that dark. But given that I have read other law-related fiction thrillers that are also set in the Deep South, maybe that's why I have an unrealistic expectation. Yeah, maybe so. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, and it's a valid comment to want to go darker. It's just it's what you want in the movie, and that's a very reasonable thing to say. I did enjoy the Louisiana Supreme Court, the building that they had chosen to shoot the court scenes in this one. That was a great choice. And I actually noted that that's a very unusually nice law firm. And that's because, it looked it up, it's the New Orleans City Hall. And it's the former City Hall, I should say. It's uh, It was used between 1845 and 53. That's not just a normal law office. Chad, didn't uh, all the restaurants make you feel at least a little bit New Orleans-y? It did. I like the outdoor porch settings, and I just wanted more. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I I could swim in it a little bit more. It's a it's a good place to be. So, wardrobe? Any kind of comments there? Typical fare to me. Okay, I thought it was interesting how Hoffman's character Wendell Roar goes out of his way to be a everyday man or kind of tacky or not too sharply dressed to make himself more approachable in his character i like how he asked the tie do i want this one or this one and the guy goes that one would be much better and then he picks the opposite one he left yeah. uh what was it ketchup left yeah. the ketchup yeah, he, he, on it. he's like you got mustard on your tie i did that on purpose yeah and contrast that with rankin finch who's hackman in this very sharply dressed it kind of implies that he's got that big corporate backing behind him and he's won a lot of big cases so definitely see it conveyed in the wardrobe as well so you see this david and goliath portrayed both within the lawyers themselves 
I will say one of my favorite parts of this movie is the fact that Dustin Hoffman did not go for it. Go for it? The money. Like, he, he's like, nope, I'm not going to get there. I'm not going to pay off anybody to buy a jury or anything. I, I just, I, I like the fact. Yeah, th- and that's another one of those moments of trickery. Like, the, the director shows you him saying, I've lost my footing in this, and it makes you think that he's about to give up everything that he's got, but then he doesn't. And do I really need that scene of, like, I almost did it kind of thing. A little bit of that's, that's the trickery that I'm referring to again, but uh, no, I'm glad you're right that he wasn't corrupted. It's very twicky. We can all be a little twicky sometimes. <laughs> I like, I like the scene where he grabs a wrist and he's like, who hurt you? Like <laughs> right. who, who broke you and made you this way? <laughs> and uh, you know, she, you later know that she has good motives and how hard that is for her to portray, but uh, she sticks through it. Just So in the same way that she gasps a sigh of like intimidation after dealing with Finch, when dealing with Rendell, she comes out of there being like, that almost broke my heart because I admire him, but I can't let that, I can't let that show. Mm-hmm. Anything on the soundtrack? I'm not even sure if I paid any attention to the music. That's just my bad for not having that part on you know, on key, but general score, I suppose. They actually pulled it back like during the chase scene. So you get more of the footsteps and uh, all the audio with banging into fences and things like that. That was something that stuck out to me. But yeah, it starts off with just singing Big Rock Candy Mountain and quickly escalates into an office shooting. So Charlie... I think the soundtrack is best in the chase scenes and those tense action moments. That they they have good tension there. But you're right. There's moments of brass in the backgrounds of the street, but a real grungy blues at times might have been a nice touch there to have had moments of danger in there as well. Again, I I, I want those different aspects of New Orleans to come into the music as well. And I understand you have to have those the standard thriller affair tense moments and stuff but on the other hand um i think there's a real opportunity that they didn't fully take advantage of they didn't want to they did say they didn't want new orleans to be a caricature like they didn't want it to be like here's bourbon street and parades and cemeteries so chad would get his parades and brian would get his cemeteries they didn't want to do that they wanted it to be more (laughs) they wanted to be more real new orleans quote unquote and contextual and not just be like all the postcard scenes so they had a Cajun-speaking lady in a voodoo shop. How much more stereotype could you ask for? That's a good point. Those are Gary Fletter's words in the director's commentary, not mine. So you can you can go back to him and say, I will use your words against you, sir. Yeah, you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a place like that when I was down there, too. I was super excited. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wee! So you guys ready to hand out some awards? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Brian, who is your MVP of Runaway Jury? I didn't say the Runaway Jury, by the way. I'm really proud of myself. Who is your MVP of the Runaway Jury? Runaway Jury. Um, I went with Gene Hackman just because I like a good bad guy, and he does a good bad guy. His line of because I is like oh, and because I just don't give a shit. Like that's like you can't convince me I'm doing the wrong thing. Because I have not only no remorse about it, I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, yeah. Like, that was, I, I feel like that scene in the bathroom where you have, you know, Dustin Hoffman on his high horse and 
basically Gene Hackman being like, ah, 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 ah. Straight up. Like, I like how you made him into the cute. count. Yeah, I mean, he's just like, it's 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 cute that you're like this, and I'm going to unlock the bathroom door now and, and, and leave. Have fun with your morals. With your ethics and your integrity. Oh, it's so cute. Um, yeah, no, Chad, who's your MVP of Runaway Jerry? John Grisham. Oh, great choice. Yeah. And so you've not read the book, though, right? You're just, you like the story? Yeah, I, I like the story. It had some great twists and turns, and I, I thought the characters were interesting. And one of my biggest criticisms is we didn't spend more time with them. Okay. Would you be compelled to read this book after watching this movie, either one of you? I think so, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would say that if there were the two two John Grisham books that I will basically force myself to read at some point, not because you need to force me, just I just want to do it, is this one in Pelican Brief. Coincidentally, my two favorite Grisham movies. Yeah, I've seen some other Grisham movies. Not as many as you, I don't think, but... um. I, I, this is, this is right up there for ones that I'd like to read. So the jury tampering aspect of it, the whole thing is very, it's interesting to me. I like, I like that, um, shadowy underbelly of the courts. MVP for me is going to be Gene Hackman, Frank and Finch. And Brian said it so well. He's so good at being a bad guy and he's having so much fun doing it. Yeah. Best supporting actor, Brian. I went Bruce McGill on this one. Uh, he plays the judge. He has so many great lines in this movie. I I love this guy since uh, basically Legend of Bagger Vance. I love this character in that too. So he's just kind of one of those guys that you know him from something. You can't always put your finger on what exactly you remember him from. But he's always fun. Like you're never like, oh, that guy. And, you know, kind of like Brian Dennehy. He's just one of those people that you're like, yeah, him. Oh, yeah, for sure. And he pops up in a, a number of things. I actually kind of always think of him from, like, Animal House, to be honest with you. Sure, absolutely. Chad, who's your best supporting actor? I went with Gene Hackman. You guys won Support? MVP. And... Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I feel like Cusack is the main character. Okay. But, yeah, Hackman's villain was completely unsympathetic, and he reveled in it, and... You know, he just has these great lines that he just drops constantly. Like, you think your average juror is King Solomon? No, he's a roofer and just stuff like right. that. Um, he, he's highly intelligent while being a psychopath. Yeah, you pointed out a good thing. Not only is he intelligent, but he actually holds normal jurors and normal everyday people in contempt because of how smart he is. He looks down upon them. And oh, yeah. like, I'm better than all of these people and I can break them down in two seconds. That's another good part of his character. I'm kind of glad you touched on that. My best supporting actor uh, probably would have been Bruce McGill as well, but I'm just going to give a nod here to Nick Searcy. Uh, he plays Doyle. That's Rankin Finch's employee and dirty work, man. He gets a lot of screen time, to be honest with you. And I like the moments of like where he's just trying to play like i'm thinking about buying this house is this a nice friendly neighborhood and so he can kind of turn the charm on when he has to but he's also uh he's pretty cold-hearted when he's down to it and it just shows you again the extent of this organization's reach so doyle gets a lot of time on screen so i'm gonna go with nick searcy good choice 
Hidden gem, Brian. Gary uh, Bandman, he plays the, the blind juror. I like the part where he walks in and basically says, like, I, I want to be a part of this and you can't really stop me. And I, I like what that adds to it. I like it, how Cusack used it. I don't know. I just, I thought that's a, that is a interesting piece of flair that made parts of the movie more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Chad, hidden gem. Mentioned him earlier, but Orlando Jones. He's got, <laughs> a, he's got a small speaking part and I, I like when he shows up. Well, uh, you know, Brian and I are stride for stride. We're three for three on the same one. I picked Gary Bannon as well for the, uh, you know, Hireman Grimes, your blind juror. So, uh, you know, that's really, uh, Chad's uh, just sandwiching in variety for us. I appreciate that. But uh, <laughs> I, I'll go ahead and give a nod to Nora Dunn. She's the alcoholic juror who gets kicked off. She's a former SNL cast member, and this is an unexpected type of role to see her in. And um, I just, uh, I liked her character in this. So um, fun, fun, different look for her, but uh, that's my nod. If you had to recast somebody, Brian, and put somebody in their place, who would it be and who are you putting in their spot? I think I would like to see Gene Hackman do that verbal sparring match with Al Pacino instead of Dustin Hoffman. Huh. I, mm. I really enjoy Al Pacino in courtroom settings, and I just think that would be fun. And given his his, his age at the time would not have differed all that much from Hoffman's, so I'm not talking about like current older gentleman Al Pacino. I mean, he was still older but still i I don't know i think a a verbal sparring match between al pacino and gene hackman would be fun huh uh i could see pacino somehow taking over the role of finch more than i could see him taking over the role of wendell but that's interesting that you put him in the wendell roar character and i don't want to lose the height differential between hackman and hoffman Uh, al pacino is a shorter guy too i think it it makes it look better to have the smaller guy confronting the larger man so that's why I wouldn't go the other way around with it. Nice. I just I just can't picture Pacino with with a twang or a southern draw. I'm sure he's probably done a movie with that, but I can't. It'd be very interesting hearing that. Now, Chad, who would you recast? I am going after Cliff Curtis. He plays Frank Herrera. He just didn't strike me as this jarhead they were going for, so I. I want someone that could pull off the role better. Uh, not a better actor here, but I think Randy Couture, who uh, he was in The Expendables, but he's known for his MMA fighting. Uh, he's He's been in military-type movies. I think he would have pulled off that jarhead role a little bit better. Hmm. I could see that. How, how old would he have been in this? He's only three years uh, older than, like, John Cusack. Okay. Yeah, born in 63. Cusack was born in 66. That's just kind of high quantified age in terms of that. So my recast and uh, don't throw things at me, but I'm I actually am questioning is Rachel Weiss the perfect oh, boo, cast for this, this one. Man. And <laughs> I'm going to go with Marissa Tomei in the role instead. Yeah, I can live with that. 
<laughs> I mean, I well, I already said earlier that if Amanda Pete had gotten it, I would have been on board. If Connolly had gotten it, I would have been on board. I'm not saying that Rachel Weiss is just an interchangeable character, but there are a lot of dark-haired female actresses that I really like that if you had swapped this out and I'd seen it that way, I wouldn't have had qualms with. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Marissa Tomei, still an Oscar winner. so And she's a little closer to Cusack's age as well, so... In terms of being an item together. Best shot of the movie, Brian. Uh, Hackman and uh, Cusack hashing it out on the levee was my favorite kind of frame up with the two of them talking with the water in the background. You're remarkably aligned with me. And this is, it's, it's creepy, man. Yeah. We really didn't talk about this beforehand, I swear. <laughs> yeah. I also have Nick Easter meeting rank and Fitch at the outlet collection at the Riverwalk Fountain. So, yeah. Uh, that's crazy. Chad, do something different, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm here to contribute variety to this show. So, <laughs> mine was, uh, there's this casual tracking shot that follows Dustin Hoffman down a long hallway when he's having a conversation with his team and it's it's shot over his shoulder and it's just this long unedited sequence and you it, it's nice because you feel like you're a part of the conversation and that you're actually just standing behind him as part of the team yeah that's a great choice very west wing of it and thank yeah. you for not also picking the fountain the riverwalk fountain scene as well so <laughs> you're welcome both you guys and our listeners <laughs> we'll have an hour and a half if i agree <laughs> <laughs> there's gonna be there's gonna Brian. be like one what one guy's gonna watch this and be like what's the big deal with the levy scene i don't get it either that guy no um i'm with chad best scene brian <laughs> i went with the bathroom between pacino and hackman i'm sorry between uh, hoffman and hackman i just i i assumed that was going to be the same too i i knew after the levy was it was it i was like god we're gonna have the bathroom scene too <laughs> we're one recast away from having just everything aligned it's amazing what how is this your best scene like i'll let you take the floor on that one that was the first time that i really felt the david versus goliath piece that we discussed earlier like the, it, they really, they did that lower shot. So it really ta- uh, brought up the height difference between the two. The fact that he kind of makes fun of what he's wearing a little bit. Oh, your, your suit's a lot nicer. It, it gave that polish versus presence uh, dichotomy. And I feel like that really set up your true protagonist versus antagonist. I mean, I know Cusack being the main character and that he, it, all in all, is fighting the good fight. But Dustin Hoffman is the good guy here. He's the only one at the end of this that didn't do anything illegal to attain what he wanted. Yeah, two powerhouse actors just dominating. It's it's a great scene. Just It's what I think of when I think of the movie. I mean, if I had to have a runner-up just for variety's sake, I would, I would say the fast reveal as Doyle is uncovering those motives and and then again, Finch realizes he's too late and he's taking the hit that like, what have I done kind of thing. But uh, that's a distant second. Chad, can you be different for us? I can <laughs> consistently. So mine was between Marley and Fitch and their scene. I felt like the tension was at an 11 with this and Marley's really just standing there owning this moment and standing up to Fitch who is 
intimidating, and the size difference is even more exaggerated with Rachel Weiss to Gene Hackman versus Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman. And then at the end, I've already mentioned it, but Marley exiting the trolley and she just lets out this sigh of relief that the scene's over. I just thought it was such a nice touch and Rachel Weiss did an amazing job in that scene. I really liked it. For what it's worth, both Dustin Hoffman and Rachel Weiss are five foot six and they are the same height differential to Gene Hackman. Huh. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Rachel Weiss is like for five minutes I'm gonna out bad guy you. Yeah. Yeah. All of that bluffing. That's a great scene, and I like the trolley. We didn't give the trolley some credit there. Uh, that I liked that uh, the grassy tracks there. That 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 was a moment of New Orleans. It's the brighter, happier Chad New Orleans, not the darker, um, you know, creepy swamp version of New Orleans that Brian's looking for. But uh, still New Orleans nonetheless. Change one thing, Brian. I've already mentioned it like five times, but I would have made this a little bit of a darker movie. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, well, great. We're not completely aligned. <laughs> um, Chad, you go, go ahead. You go ahead though. Change one thing. Yeah. I've been harping on it. I don't like the change from tobacco to, I guess you'd call it gun control. I don't know if you'd really call this gun control, but I, I felt like the insider was far enough removed. And Russell, you made this point as well that it made more sense to stick to, to tobacco as the primary issue. And I think I could have dealt with it. I, I don't know who the producers were. Tobacco, we already made one movie about tobacco, and we all know nobody can make any more movies about tobacco ever again. Smoke. <laughs> yeah. Thank You for Smoking was definitely a movie. In, oh, I love that movie. 2008, 2009. Yeah. Well, this would have sandwiched yeah, right in between yeah. there. It would have hit the sweet spot in between. So, Well, short, although if short. this had been about smoking, that would have been four years down the line. They would have had to make thank you for shooting guns instead of thank you for smoking. Short rabbit trail. I saw that with Brian with two other people in the theater, and we completely yeah. ruined their plan. Yes. That was an interesting <laughs> viewing. Oh, we apologize <laughs> to those two. I have also harped on this, but my change one thing is remove the candle scene at the beginning. I just didn't need to be fooled into thinking that they weren't an item. Nobody was listening in on them that we were aware of at that point. So them meeting in that manner was just kind of weird when you go back and think about it at the end. It's cool the first time, but... Yeah, I had to get the New Orleans voodoo. That would have been a more useful scene had they not Im almost immediately ended up her ending up in his apartment. Right. Yeah. Like if, if they had maintained this, you know, untraceable phone calls only thing that would have done that, that would do best quote, Brian trials are too important to be left up to juries. Oh my gosh. You SOB. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I swear my That's my, a great line though. It is I mean, a great that, line. Like if you take that even if you took it out of this movie and you heard somebody make that statement like in a, in just, you know, let's say a lawyer goes out and has a couple drinks with friends and makes that statement and they all have a good laugh about it. That's a great line. Like that is a really really good line. It is. And Hackman delivers it so well. He just like has that little snide kind of like smile and confidence too. It's just like there are some things that are too important to be left to juries. And it's just like 
oh, the slime's just falling off of him, like at his shoulders and like off of his like neck and stuff like that. It's just this so slimy. Love it. It's great. Chad, best quote. Can you be different? I will. I hate Baptist almost as much as I hate Democrats. <laughs> that one actually made me laugh out loud. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Wow, Brian, I don't think we've ever been more in alignment on a movie. Yeah. So. Sorry, movie audience. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and... Just uh, makes us right. <laughs> we agree. Now, on a five-star scale using half-star intervals, Brian, what would you rate Runaway Jury from 2003? I gave this one a four, slightly higher than the uh, the... Cons- uh, the average that IMDb and critics and, and users have given it. But I think this is an extraordinarily rewatchable movie. I hold that that piece up pretty high in my, my ratings of things. This is a very entertaining movie, and uh, and I think it's it's got good points. It's got the antagonist and protagonist really play off each other well. And I don't know. I just, I, I like all of the elements that come together in this to make it a very watchable film. Mm-hmm. Now, Chad, on a five-star scale, what are you giving Runaway Jury? I'm going four stars as well. I, I felt some of it's kind of improbable. We touched on how does he even get on the jury, but it's entertaining. Uh, I, I do caution people i guess that your star rating may be dramatically impacted by your views on gun control i could see people that are very pro second amendment really just not giving this movie much of a chance or if you're on the other side you're this might be a five star for you hey if you don't like it take it in your backyard throw it up in the air and blast it out of the air with your (laughs) ak-47 That would be a horrible gun to use for that. You would use a shotgun, but yes, something like that. That, you can tell I'm such a gun guy. (laughs) Russell has not been skeet shooting. You are a bad West Virginian. I am. I am. I don't know what gun Dick Cheney would shoot his friend in the face with even. Not an AK-47. It was a shotgun with birdshot. There you go. (laughs) Yes. uh, I'm also going to give this a four star. So we all agree on this one. So of, of course you do, Russell. You couldn't even shift that. Well, I, I will say this. The first time I watched it, I came away with going like, this is amazing. And I think I even showed it to my wife right away. But then I came back and I studied it harder this time. And some of that deliberate storytelling stuff that I said of just like, oh, some of these twists are highly rewarding. And they're probably the ones that Grisham wrote, to be honest with you. And then some of the stuff in there is cheap. And I don't want this movie to be cheapened. You got a very good cast, and the story is deep enough and emotional enough and fun enough on its own. I don't need to be tricked. And some of those things kind of got to me, and we kind of touched on the, the the scenery stuff like that. The more and more I realized, oh, they did a good job, like with that church that they shot there, where uh, Nick Easter was meeting Marley and stuff like that. But on the other hand, we talked about how there's more. There was more character to tap into right there in New Orleans. So there were there was some technique things and uh i don't want to poop on gary flutter to the degree that malton and ebert did but i'm not gonna lie i kind of see where they're coming from too at the same time so all right guys let's uh pick a movie sounds good let's do it all right option number one it's a time of viruses pandemics and quarantining and all that stuff so that leads us to option number one from 2008 quarantine 
A television reporter and her cameraman are trapped inside of a building, quarantined by the CDC after an outbreak of a mysterious virus which turns humans into bloodthirsty killers. From 2002, 28 days later, four weeks after a mysterious incurable virus spreads throughout the UK, a handful of survivors try to find sanctuary. And from 2007, wreck. A television reporter and a cameraman follow emergency workers into a dark apartment building, and they're quickly locked inside with something terrifying. Oh. Uh, <laughs> appropriate movies for the time. Wreck uh, is amazing. Uh, have you guys seen it? No. Negative. Uh, I'm going to Wreck. I think you guys will really love it. Okay. I'm looking forward to that. I like movies that I haven't Let's seen before, it. so that that's always a pleaser for me. So, Now... Chad, thank you for doing this. Brian, thank you. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. And thank you, all the lords and ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcast. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. And we invite you to support the show at Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions are appreciated and will make the show better. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? I've decided my agenda for the future. Stay in bed, drink, make love, and forget the whole damn business.